0: Hello, and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories for the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is staff writer at Time Magazine and Bunker regular, Yasmin Sahan. Good morning, Yasmin. Good morning, Justin. So we'll start today with the ongoing story of the cost of living, crisis and energy bills. After bubbling under and being warned about for months, this story has now become the number one issue for the country and the government alike. The projected figure for now seems to be an 80% rise in bills, while over the weekend, the Chancellor Nadim Zahawi said that middle earners again need help with their bills. Markets are expected to be further squeezed this week as Russia halts gas supplies through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany for three days of maintenance work from Wednesday. Yasmin, after a summer of government paralysis, do you think we're finally seeing some moves to address this? Um,
1: I mean, I, I'm still not expecting like concrete details. Like anytime soon, this week at least. I I mean, it's just so difficult to say, I think, because in large part, it feels like there hasn't really been much of a government (laughs) the last few weeks. I mean, Boris Johnson is obviously a lame duck prime minister and who seemingly spent, I think, more of the last several weeks on the continent than he has in the country. And that leaves the rest of us in kind of this very precarious position of waiting for a new leader to announce grand plans to address what is poised to be, you know, a very difficult winter. And I think from what I've seen, at least both Rishi Sunak and Trust have talked a good game about providing support. But I think what we're waiting to see and what we've seen elsewhere is is more details on exactly what that support could look like. You know, it's, it's, it's a comfort to know that <laughs> maybe we're, we're going to get some help. And, and certainly the, the most vulnerable among us will, will get some additional help. But when you're seeing these projected price rises of potentially 300 to 500 pounds a month on your energy bills, it's a cold comfort to be told, oh, oh don't worry, we'll, we'll have something for you. I, I think we just find ourselves in a really difficult situation where no one is technically in charge yet. And the person who is is already on his way out, so perhaps feels that he doesn't need to.
0: Zahar, um, so we talked um, over the weekend of how people earning £45,000 a year again need assistance. Now, for context, this is a country where the average salary is around 32000 How bad is this going to be politically for a government when pretty much the in- that's the entire middle class that are going to be getting hit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be very bad. I mean, you know, I look to my energy bills. I mean, the, the prospect of them going up to 300 pounds a month, which are the estimates coming out of the Office of Gas and Electricity Markets. That's their projections. But other projections, such as those from the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Resolution Foundation, project monthly bills going as much as 500 pounds during the winter months. I mean, I simply wouldn't know where that money is coming from. And I suspect a lot of middle-class people and even more vulnerable people in this country don't know where that money's coming from. And I think The concern there is that you put people in this precarious position where they suddenly have to figure out, okay, am I going to be putting this money towards heating my flat over the winter or am I going to put it towards groceries? Am I going to put it towards other basic necessities? And I think what's equally concerning is that in the absence of kind of more detail of of what we're going to get. From the government in, in terms of assistance or, or changes. Instead, I'm seeing things like the Telegraph Money column that was being certainly tweeted about over the weekend, which was giving people advice, um, suggestions to its readers for how to save money on costs, with some truly bizarre recommendations like shower elsewhere five days a week and charge your devices at the office. The premise assuming, of course, that uh, the readers have an office to go to that has a shower equipped. But yeah, I mean, these are not solutions. They they might be little things people can do if they want to shave off a bit of costs on the side, but but it's not a solution for a country. And as you put it, an entire middle class that are going to be expecting a very difficult winter.
0: So howie also broke with his colleagues in suggesting that people should be encouraged to reduce energy consumption. There's been no government announcement on this yet, but where's the rest of Europe on this?
1: Yeah, we're seeing a bit more concrete things from Europe and certainly more warnings I think about the difficulty that we're going to have you know I saw that Belgium's prime minister Alexander De Croo warned that people should hope for the best and prepare for the worst I mean, obviously, that's that's not um, it's not it's certainly not wishful thinking, but it's also not what we heard, I think, a few weeks ago when the government was saying, actually, we don't need to worry about blackouts because, you know, th- that's not something we have to worry about yet. Um, in in France, similarly, the prime minister there told business leaders to submit energy saving plans by next month, warning that otherwise there could be rationing. More generally, I think on the continent there has been a recognition that the government needs to step in and address the rising energy prices, and the European Commission President um, Ursula von der Leyen said the bloc is preparing structural energy reforms that would tackle the costs. But I think there, too, we're still awaiting some details. But, you know, if, for example, in Germany, I mean, I think we're seeing a bit, a bit more of a positive thing where even though obviously Germany, like much of the continent, has, has had a reliance on, on Russian gas and energy for, I think, at least continent-wide, I think it was 40% last year. They're already, I think, beating their targets to fill up their gas storage facilities by 85%. Um, and the government is there has already actually approved a set of energy-saving measures that will reduce. Gas usage by two percent, which doesn't sound like very much, but it, it includes things like you know limiting the use of lighting and heating in public buildings. Um, it means that public monuments and buildings won't be lit up for aesthetic reasons. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to when, of course, you know, in solidarity, everyone lit up monuments with the Ukrainian flag. We probably see less of that um, this winter. Private swimming pools not being heated, things like that. So, I mean, we we are hearing a bit more concrete steps, and I think. What what needs to happen here and what will hopefully happen here is that we're gonna hear similar things from the government when the next leader is in place.
0: Just a final point on this. This head in the sand attitude by our own government, followed by eventually moving late and then playing catch up with what the public and other governments are already doing feels very, very much like COVID all over again. Why is it that this government just seem incapable of getting on the front foot with any of these problems?
1: It's <laughs> I, I mean, you you almost want to say it's systemic, but I mean I, I think what's More confounding to me is that obviously when when the prime minister resigned earlier this summer, he kind of made a point about wanting to stay on until his successor was chosen. But in that time, I feel like, you know, perhaps I'm being unfair to to the prime minister, but it doesn't really feel like from everything we've heard, like he's actually really wanted to lead during this period, especially with all the crises coming about. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it's a woeful indictment of the government's ability to govern amid a leadership contest. I mean, if you're going to have a contest that lasts for this long, you need to have plans in place to ensure that government continues to run smoothly. And I feel like for for the for for a lot of people, it probably just feels like it it hasn't in large part because we're just not hearing our leaders. We're not seeing them telling us this is what's going to happen.
0: Tomorrow night sees the final Tory hustings after an interminable leadership campaign. We must assume that, bar some absolute act of God, that it's Liz Truss we're going to see announced as winner on September the 5th. Yasmin, are we getting more of an idea of who her cabinet is likely to comprise of?
1: Yes, we are. We're, we're getting some tidbits, and it includes a lot of familiar faces, I think, including some former leadership challengers, um, according to the Financial Times uh, for their leadership contender Suella Braverman is tipped to be Home Secretary. That's pretty Patel's job um, currently. Kemi Badenoch is also expected to get a senior post. We know, of course, that people like Tom Tugendhat have made no secret of their desire to serve in some capacity. Uh, but we've also seen some other familiar names that perhaps listeners of this podcast would recognize. Kwasi Kwarteng uh, is tipped for Chancellor, Therese Coffey, James Cleverly, Jace- Jacob Rees-Mogg. Th- these are all people that are, are tipped for for some potential role in her government. So we'll certainly be seeing the departure of potentially more familiar faces like uh, Dominic Raab, perhaps even Rishi Sunak, who knows. Yeah. I
0: will say, Johnson famously purged the Tory party of anyone who didn't go all in for the one true Brexit? Are we likely to see a similar clearing of the decks by Truss, or do you think there's a chance to be more conciliatory towards uh, Sunak and those who backed him?
1: I mean, I mean, what Johnson did when he stripped the Conservative whip off of all those MPs who disagreed with him on Brexit it was pretty ruthless politics. And, you know, I don't, as much as Truss may appear to be the more Johnsonian candidate of the two, she doesn't particularly strike me as, as ruthless in that in that same way. So, and, and to, to be honest, I don't even know what there is to benefit from her doing that. Sunek has already indicated in interviews that he probably wouldn't want to be part of her government anyway because he doesn't want to end up in another situation where he finds himself disagreeing with his boss um, on, quote-unquote, the big issues. So, you know, I don't think we'll see much reconciliation in that way, him perhaps uh, taking a a role in her cabinet. But I would imagine that the next leader of the party would crucially want to project an image of unity as especially at such a difficult time.
0: And uh, late yesterday, Truss pulled out of a scheduled interview with the BBC's Nick Robinson, which was due to air Tuesday evening on account of being too busy, along with her comments praising GB News at the last Hustings. What can we read into this?
1: To me, it was just very reminiscent of Johnson's decision to back out of the interview with Andrew Neil during the last general election. You know, I feel like her cancellation probably is that sort of second big one um, that that we've seen in that way. I mean, the way Truss probably sees it this contest is already in the bag, so there's no need to potentially ruin that lead by partaking in an interview that could see her facing difficult questions about the challenges ahead, especially if she doesn't have definitive answers for how she's going to tackle them. That isn't an excuse for it. That's just how I've interpreted it. I think she knows. She probably thinks, why do I need to subject myself to more difficult questions in the final week? when I I already have this substantial lead. But the problem with this, of course, is that it then becomes a news item that she's backed out of this interview. And it provides some ammunition for the SUNET campaign, which probably desperately needs it. They came out and said that it's important that candidates face proper scrutiny and that avoiding that scrutiny suggests that she doesn't have a plan or that all the plans that she does have fall short of the challenges that we're going to face. So it's become a news story whether that impacts her. I mean, she can already look to her predecessor and say, well, you know, it probably won't matter.
0: Moving to global affairs, over in Ukraine, while last week's celebrations of Independence Day largely passed off without the atrocities from Russia, which had been expected, the standoff at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant continues. Um, Yasmin, what's the latest from the plant?
1: Yeah, so um, the, the major news to watch this week is that the United Nations nuclear watchdog, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, is actually sending a team to the plant. Um, they're expected to arrive later this week. As for the situation, the situation there is still pretty precarious. Just as for context, the Russian military took over the plant in early March. It's still being operated by Ukrainian staff, but under some pretty difficult conditions, as you might imagine. It's been ex- exposed to a lot of shelling, uh, for which Moscow and Kiev have both blamed each other. So I think. The visit of international inspectors, which Putin said that he would allow earlier, which was widely welcomed, um, I think is going to mark an important opportunity to be able to verify what is actually happening on the ground. Zelensky warned last week that Europe was, quote unquote, one step away from a radiation disaster, not because the plant is being exposed to shelling, but actually because the plant was briefly disconnected from Ukraine's power grid and backup generators had to kick in. So it's definitely... Not, I think it's a pretty dangerous situation, and and not one that um, Europe probably wants to be dealing with amidst all the other crises that it's facing right now. So yeah, that that's kind of where we're at in terms of that.
0: You recently wrote in Time about public attitudes in Russia to the war and how well support for it is holding up. Um, what surprised you the most in your research?
1: Yeah, I so I talked to the Levada Center, which is. Considered Russia's last independent pollster and is probably the most reliable polling that you'll get out of the country. And I found the consistency of the support for the war to be a little surprising, if for no other reason than the fact that it suggests that, you know, for many ordinary Russians, life either hasn't fundamentally changed in a way that would prompt a shift in public opinion, especially as it relates to Vladimir Putin's approval ratings, which stand at 83% and haven't really budged since March. But it also suggests perhaps that they're kind of resigned to accepting the narrative of the war that's been provided to them, either from the government or or from state-backed TV channels. The other thing that kind of surprised me a little bit was the fact that, in fact... Russians are losing interests in the war as the days go on. Which which is, you know, kind of concerning, given the fact that I think perhaps there was an naive expectation at the beginning of the war, especially when we saw those brave Russians, I think some fifteen thousand of whom were arrested, protesting in the beginning that perhaps public opinion would apply domestic pressure on Vladimir Putin. And I think what the Levada Center's polling shows us is that in fact you know maybe that isn't the case even 6 months on and and maybe there is an appetite within the country for this special operation as it as it's called there to to, to go on a bit longer but but i think something that is worth flagging and is worth noting is that even if an ordinary russian is being called up by the Levada center should they know its reputation especially relating to other pollsters in the country it's that russians are I think as a default setting, and quite understandably, going to be very suspect of anyone who calls them asking for their opinion. So there is an expectation that some of the people who do pledge support for the war, perhaps don't actually believe it, and perhaps just believe that that's what they should say, because it's more expedient to just follow the government line. However, when I, you know, looking at sort of expert um, studies done on this, that would perhaps affect maybe 10%, but not an 83% margin. So yeah, I was pretty surprised by the level of support. And it will be interesting to see how long that continues should the war carry on for a year or longer than that.
0: And over on the battlefield, the breaking news over the past 24 hours has been of what appears to be a concerted Ukrainian push to retake the Kherson region in the south of the country. What's the importance of this region and what should we be looking out for as this story develops over the days ahead?
1: So the the Kherson region is is in southern Ukraine. It's one of the largest Ukrainian cities that is in Russian hands. it basically fell to Russia pretty easily once the invasion began in February. And it's the only regional capital that was taken by Russian forces and is currently administered by Moscow-backed officials. In fact, according to to some Russian outlets, officials in the city have started moving forward with plans to hold a referendum on formally joining Russia. That's prompted accusations by the U.S. that Russia could be preparing illegally annex parts of occupied southern Ukraine. But given their Past tendencies with occupying parts of Ukraine—that really isn't surprising. I mean, I think in terms of what to watch, you know, so much of this war has has really kind of descended into sort of a deadlocked conflict in a lot of ways. So, for Ukraine to retake back some of its territory, I think would mark a pretty significant change in the conflict. So, yeah, I mean, that—that's certainly some. Whether that happens this week or in a couple of weeks' time, um, I, I think uh, I I wouldn't know. It's it's hard to say, but that that is definitely that region is something to watch.
0: Back in the UK, this week's going to see further strike days affecting the Postal Service as members of the Communication Workers Union down tools again on Wednesday. The union have rejected an offer up to 5.5% with talks having now gone on for three months. Yasmin, um, this isn't the only industrial action we're looking at this week. What other disruption can listeners expect?
1: Yeah. So in in addition to Royal Mail strikes, which are taking place until September 9th, during which time letters are not going to be delivered, um, there are ongoing strikes by refuse workers in Edinburgh, as well as in the London Borough of Newham. um, And we're also seeing barrister strikes across England and Wales from the 5th of September. That goes on indefinitely. There's an AQA exam board strikes. There's, of course, the Felixstowe container port strikes, BT strikes, school worker strikes in certain parts of Scotland. So there's quite a lot, to be honest, in all the dates where are, are quite different. But but yeah, there, there's there's a lot of strike action going going along right now.
0: You mentioned there the Felixstowe strike and we saw incredible scenes from there last week with a striking dock worker riding a jet ski around the deserted waters of the <laughs> court, which is, that's come along some way from huddling around a brazier in a donkey jacket, which was my memory of strikes from when I was a kid. Despite all this... And the disruption you mentioned, public opinion still seems to be broadly on the workers' side across all of these disputes. The unions have broadly done a great job across social media of keeping the argument on their side. Has the absence of a government this summer helped them in that it's left the field wide open for the unions there?
1: Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. I mean, I think the, the fact is, if you're if you're hearing more from union
0: bosses on your television than you are from
1: from from your prime minister, I mean, I, I think the the leadership candidates may have commented a bit on it, but but yeah, undoubtedly, I, I think that that certainly helps if if they have the playing field all for themselves.
0: I mean, Truss's Thatcher cosplay throughout this campaign has been well documented. Can we expect a similarly dramatic showdown with the unions when she eventually takes office? Do you think? I mean,
1: she's going to have a pretty full entry when she enters number 10, if she enters number 10. However, she has indicated that she would take a tougher line on the trade unions, in part by instituting a number of measures, um, I think, including raising the minimum threshold of support for strike action from 40 to 50 percent, though, that, you know, people may see that as a little too little too late by now. And um, I think she's also pledged to double the notice period for industrial action to four weeks. Um, And to stop members from receiving tax-free payments from their unions on strike days. So, yeah, I mean, she she may well (laughs) do, especially given, as you said, her her desire to be kind of likened to Thatcher. So, um, but yeah, for for the moment, I mean, she's going to have so much to deal with. It will be interesting to see where that falls in terms of her priorities.
0: And other stories we'll be keeping an eye on this week at The Bunker. There'll be lots of market news with the British Retail Consortium publishing its monthly economic briefing later today, and China's central bank publishing its first half figures on Wednesday. Also today, the Czech Republic and EU ministers will meet to discuss Russian aggression and its impact on EU security, while Kenya's new president, William Ruto, is expected to be sworn in. And Wednesday sees former Pakistani PM Imran Khan appear in court in Islamabad on contempt charges. Also in Pakistan, an ongoing story this week, and I think probably over the whole month ahead is going to be the aftermath of the flooding which has hit Sindh province. And finally, next Saturday sees England's women's football team return to the pitch for the first time since their triumph at European Championships. Lionesses play Austria in a World Cup qualifier game. Yasmin, will you be turning up at the pub in full kit, including shin pads, or is women's football fever not gripped you?
1: Oh, I, it definitely has gripped me. I absolutely loved watching the Lionesses um, win the Euros uh, earlier in the summer. As for the kit, though, I'm a bit torn because I'm an American, and obviously I love the American women's team as well, so I don't own kit for any team. I might see if I can buy two jerseys and stitch them together. I don't know if that's something that would be appreciated by either team, but I will be watching.
0: That's a very diplomatic answer. The half and <laughs> half scarf maybe be making a comeback. And that is Start Your Week. Yasmin, thank you for getting up early to join us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the shows we produce, the best way to keep them coming is to follow us on Patreon, where your support can directly fund Start Your Week and our other shows, including Oh God, What Now? and Doomsday Watch. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast for a few pounds a week, get to the shows early and without ads, along with all other perks. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the panel show.
1: Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Justin Quirk with Yasmin Serhan. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofianevich and Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.